Let's ask God for his help as we learn from his word. Heavenly Father, we come here tonight as broken people. Please help us as we listen to put aside all the distractions of this world and commit this time to you. Please help me in my weakness to speak with liberty and to faithfully proclaim your word. Humble our hearts, Lord. Open our ears so we may draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone has come through the doors this evening and has been welcomed in some way. The welcomers hopefully said hi, gave you a news sheet and possibly asked you how you're going. Other people in the foyer may have seen you arrive and approached you to talk. And at some stage, we've all ended up seated in here. Do you feel welcomed? Or have you welcomed others? Have you avoided someone? Has someone avoided you? These are all things that happen from time to time around us, but do you think much about it? I know from my own experience, although I'd like to say that I view everyone in the same way, at times I don't. Jess and I were at Macca's the other evening having dinner. As we were eating, a group of people from a different cultural background than me came in also. I was quick to let my assessment of their appearance drive worldly stereotypes of what this group was like. The more I watched them and confronted this issue in my head, the more I realised that we often don't even think people are worth getting to know. They're just a group of mates getting dinner, right? Sometimes we have already made a judgement of what we think someone will be like before we even get to know them. How unloving and hypocritical does that sound? But if we're honest, it's quite common. How accepting are we as individuals? Do we as a church show God's love in the same way to everyone we see? Do you show unfair favour towards certain people? This is a question well worth asking, as James is clear that this has no place in the Christian life. In the book of James so far, we have seen how Christians should be living. Chapter 1 has been a broad outline of what that looks like, living the joyful Christian life where sin is put to death and the privileged identity is celebrated. Chapter 1 also emphasises how Christians should listen to God's word and respond with action. Now in chapter 2, James begins discussing more specific issues and firstly, he addresses how Christians must not be partial. Verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He is declaring that believers ought not share in an attitude of partiality, or as the NIV translation puts it, not to not show favouritism. James is not stating this as merely good moral teaching for the worldly, but addresses the people as those who hold their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
What does it look like to hold the faith in Jesus in verse 1? It is to profess Jesus as Lord, Lord over life and Lord reigning over the world and everything in it. He is also the Christ, the promised Messiah, the fulfilled and much-anticipated Saviour who saved his people by his death. Lastly, this beautiful image is completed as James declares that Jesus is the Lord of the glory, that is, the Lord who deserves all the glory and honour. James is making it clear that believers in this Jesus, the Lord of glory, must sincerely treat their fellow believers well. But this is not happening as they disregard the principle believers must not show partiality. And this is what James needs to address among his first century audience. How have they disregarded this principle? Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man wearing shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. The man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing shows an extravagant expression of wealth and class. Special treatment is elicited by his presence, and those gathered succumb through deference toward him by ushering him to a seat of honour. How would we respond if Timothy Keller was in town and came this evening? Or maybe Gary Ablett? I'm sure we'll give them a good welcome, find them a nice place to sit, maybe even offer them the seat next to us. We might uh, get them a hot drink, familiarise them with the facilities, and of course I would have to get their signature after the service. On the other hand, we have a poor man wearing shabby clothes, or filthy old clothes as the NIV translation puts it. This is the kind of guy that most would not naturally gravitate toward, particularly because he probably hadn't had a bath in quite a while. And this is the response James has heard of among his believers. This man is told to sit at their feet or just to stand. Would we be giving a homeless person the same warm welcome that we just gave Timothy Keller or Gary Ablett? This kind of favouritism wouldn't happen between us, would it? Do we welcome people differently depending on our perception of them or based on their outward appearance? We don't really have people from these two extremes join us very often, so how could this be happening among us? Well, we are more willing to give attention and care to people we like and easily get along with rather than someone we potentially dislike or find difficult to talk to. We don't want to inconvenience ourselves or to have that difficult conversation that feels awkward and possibly boring because they don't want to talk about our interests. But what is at the heart of these desires? Why do we so easily suit ourselves when it comes to relating to others? Why is the sin of partiality so attractive?
Many reasons, really. By having everything the way we want it, we attempt to never put strain on ourselves. Whether this is through making sure we are not inconvenienced in any way or by seeking personal advantage wherever opportunities arise, we are quite good at being self-centred. Society also tells us this is normal and that you wouldn't be living in the liberty of your rights as a human if you didn't. The world says it's acceptable to have your own agenda where you interact with people and whatever, on whatever basis you see fit. Some people are just more important than us, prompting and expecting more attention. You wouldn't want to upset the apple cart. So, is this a problem? When we meet someone new and we don't know them, we decide how, how to approach them on their appearance. James has used purely outward, worldly characteristics to describe these two guys in their assembly. This is the exact mindset that has been reported to James, as the believers establish honour-like hierarchies between themselves, making distinctions and judgments of value. This approach seemed normal to the first century to these first century Christians, but God's kingdom and people are different. They are acting like a corrupt judge in court, pursuing their own evil desires. They're making distinctions when it just doesn't make any sense to do so, and James is calling them out on it. Verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is confronting them and challenging them that this sin has no place among God's people. Not then and not now. James begins this passage with a clear statement of who a believer is, those who believe in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. And showing partiality just does not fit. James chapter 4 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? God is our good and just judge. Who are we to be making distinctions and hierarchies amongst ourselves? But more than that, when we sit as judges over others, we are acting as though we are God. James says this is wrong, and the believers need to comprehend how serious it actually is. Why is this a serious issue for God's people? Verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I feel like James asks this question with an earnest longing, as the answer would be obvious if they weren't blind to their sin. Jesus has already said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This declaration is countercultural today and was also in the first century. The poor were the despised of the population. No one wanted to associate with them, and maybe even trying to get rid of them. But the reality is that the poor outnumbered the wealthy by a large margin. Why has God chosen the poor? 
A theme can be seen in 1 Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, even things that are not, to bring to shame, bring to nothing things that are. James continues in verse 6 and 7. But you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? It really doesn't make sense why they should choose to show partiality towards the rich in these circumstances. They're being persecuted by the rich, then respond in deference. Their habit of partiality is not only confusing, but completely out of touch with God's values. James has already affirmed what our lives as Christians should look like in chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. His readers have their priorities completely upside down. They're missing the point to look after the disadvantaged by giving honour and status to the people that are blaspheming the honourable name of Jesus. God does not excuse believers who make distinctions or those who dishonour his son's name. The problem James is addressing with his readers is serious. They're honouring the rich who are blaspheming the honourable name of Jesus, completely disregarding God's values by embracing worldly values. Are we tempted to forget what our calling as believers means? Do we miss the point by overlooking the poor and valuing, valuing people that don't value God? Are we caring too much about beauty, wealth and intelligence, looking for personal gain and avoiding to step out of our comfort zone? Maybe we glorify things in our lives where we should be giving all glory and honour to God. We're not just forgetting God's values, but disobeying his law. Are we disobeying God's law? And is James saying we should be taking this disobedience more seriously? How serious do we need to take this sin of partiality? Showing favouritism is not showing love. God's royal law from verse 8 quotes Leviticus chapter 19, 18, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus often quoted this command and even broadened it in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Believers in Jesus, the Lord of glory, are not called to have a love that is selective and partial, but a love for all, from the greatest to the least. Matthew 5, 46-47 for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? James reiterates this. If you love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This is not a comparison of how weighty each sin might be, or even suggestive that partiality is a lesser sin than adultery. We are judged for our sin not through a legalistic system, where if we ace every other aspect of the law but fall short at just one small point, you go to hell. The law draws on the intentions of God and his character. Sin has always been offensive to God. Whether great or small, he expects us as believers to see our sin as offensive and to strive to live his way. As the author of the entire law, God has his own character in mind as he seeks our obedience. God didn't make his laws as a list of things we can pick and choose from. He made them so that we can live with him in his presence. To clarify, here James is talking about the law as it applies to us in New Testament times. That is, the Old Testament law fulfilled and ratified through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. God was never looking for Pharisees who show how they can obey each law but legalistically overlook their own hypocrisy. Living God's way completely changes our identity and our values. If we are diligent to obey his commands but neglect one, we are effectively neglecting them all as all as we as well as forgetting our identity in Christ. The law is not just a document, but God's spoken word. He had the same righteous and holy intentions when he spoke each one. Sin is offensive in God's sight, whether it is murder or partiality. And as we live in God's presence, we ought to fear being such a disgrace before him and make every effort to stay true to who we have become through Jesus' sacrifice. As Christians, we must strive to be distinctly different from the world through both our character and our conduct by living holy and pleasing lives for God. If Jesus walked through those doors tonight, how would you welcome him? He would not have been wearing fine clothes and jewellery. He often didn't have a place to call home, and many saw him as a bogus preacher who was out of his mind. Would you be put to shame by forgetting your identity, quickly ushering him to a seat? but spending time enjoying the company of those you get along with well. How does James want his readers to respond to this issue? And how should we respond in our lives?
Verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We've heard in chapter 1 what the law of liberty is. That is the perfect law that gives freedom. It is the new covenant that believers have through Jesus' death as he paid the penalty that is owed by our sins. As Ezekiel 36.26 says, I have given you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, an, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. We are free from our bondage, um, from the bondage of our sins, and can now live a transformed life of liberty that is pleasing and acceptable before God. And that's what He wants for us. But how should we speak and how should we act as those who are to be judged by this law that brings liberty? If it was only so simple, we would stop sinning, right? Or is it that we're not trying hard enough? Even though our hearts are changed, the process of becoming holy and perfect is not complete until the day we get to heaven. We will continue to make mistakes along this journey, but God has promised that if we continue to believe in the power of Jesus' death that atones for our wrongdoing, he will pardon us. But... Don't mistake this to mean that we are not going to be judged for the wrong we do. We must take every effort to speak and to think and to live as those who are being transformed, who do diligently put sin to death, who continually seek God's forgiveness when we slip up. Christians, along with everyone else, will one day face the judge and make account for their actions. If taking responsibility for what you have done as a Christian scares you, then you should talk to God. If taking responsibility for your sinful actions scares you and you're not yet a Christian, God is offering you a chance. Don't go away tonight feeling excluded from God's grace. Speak to someone, ask questions, and accept that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to permanently do away with the penalty due for your sin when you trust in him. We can't forget the grace that is offered in Jesus and how this transforms the way we live completely in all areas of our life. This does mean taking things like partiality seriously, acknowledging them as completely out of place for believers and dealing with them accordingly. We can't go to church and fool ourselves that by itself it will save us. Jesus has brought about complete life change, um, complete life transformation that starts in the heart. So James concludes with verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment.
How can we expect God to be merciful to us if we have not been merciful to others? We are all sinners and need mercy just as much as everyone else does. No one ever deserved a life of freedom, yet God made it possible for us. He showed us mercy from the beginning and continues to show us mercy every day. There isn't a better example than that. As people who have received this mercy, we must, not sh we must show it to others too. Christians must persevere as they have been transformed from the ways of the world. They must get rid of the old order of things that is from this world and embrace God's way of mercy. We must discard all desire to judge on appearance, background and preferences and instead show God's mercy and love. Christians need to put aside all partial and preferential treatment by relating to all in the same loving way God showed us. It can be difficult to show mercy though, as someone could have wronged you in a very hurtful and unloving way. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has given us the ultimate example of mercy in Jesus. As Christians, we ought to follow his example in the way we relate to others. Having an attitude of mercy is an essential part of living God's way. Even when the most difficult of circumstances arrive, showing mercy over showing judgment or partiality is important. Partiality creates division, whereas mercy creates unity. Judgment of sin is real and certain. Don't be caught out by ignoring sin in your life, and definitely not the sin of partiality. There is no bluffing your way out of it, but by God's grace, his fierce anger is averted. In the same way, God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Our deserved wrath and judgment are great, but God's mercies to those who trust in him are greater. His, mercy, his wrath is overcome and satisfied by his great and much-needed mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you are not yet a believer, ask yourself, am I setting myself up for a horrific eternity where God's wrath burns? Or am I willing to turn myself in and acknowledge my deepest need for God's mercy? He knows what you've done and how you feel, but your eternity can rest secure in him. But for those of us, us that have turned to Christ, who are believers in Jesus, the Lord of glory, we need to keep it in the front of our minds all the time. We become too easily complacent, becoming dulled by repetition or habit. Don't fool yourself by thinking you are loving your neighbours when really you are being partial and preferential as to who you love. You show mercy where you see fit, but hold grudges where you are unsettled. 
Are you being merciful or merciless? Will God have the same mercy on you when you are judged for your actions? Will Jesus say to you what we heard from the Matthew chapter 25 reading, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Or will you be caught off guard and hang your head in shame as you realise how self-serving, partial and unchrist-like you have been? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When the formal part of church ends this evening, what are you going to do? Who do you hope to talk to? Are you seeking out those who can benefit you or who are easy to talk to? Are you looking for someone who may not have anyone to talk to, even though you might not know them, stepping out of your little comfort bubble to live and welcome like Jesus? Maybe I have all my conversations planned out. This evening I need to talk to Andrew about youth, then... I want to talk, um, ask Haley if she can fill in for me on welcoming in two weeks' time. <laughs> Once I've sorted out all these things for myself, I'll find someone who I get along well with um, that I'll have a chat with them. I'll look for people that I know well and feel comfortable with. After all this great fellowship, I'll head home feeling better about myself and like I'm on top of everything. Or... Do I intentionally seek to welcome all of God's people, all my brothers and sisters, no matter their background, whether I get along with them or even find them difficult and taxing to talk to? Do I make time for the least and the marginalised? What about if Shomo came through those doors one Sunday? For sure, I would want to chat with him to see what benefit I could get or a relationship I might be able to build. That same week, a homeless woman has come in, like the man James describes. Did you notice her? Maybe because you could smell a pungent odour. Did you plan to welcome her? Or even think of how you could alter dinner arrangements so you could invite her into your house? You might think that this would never happen, or not at Bundy, but would you welcome the poor woman with the same vigour and excitement you would welcome the Prime Minister? Whether it's Scott Morrison, a destitute woman, a finely dressed lady or a man covered in tattoos, they're all God's people and are loved by him as they should be loved by us. These are examples from church, but what about outside that? In the workplace, at uni, at home, with friends, in public. A transformed heart is seen in all our life, not just at church. 
Will you be like me when I was at Macca's, letting worldly stereotypes dictate how we view people and relate to people, believing social stigmas? Christians ought to do away with all of these distinctions based on appearance, background, status, age, gender and all the rest. Jesus never overlooked anyone, from the greatest to the least. We should never overlook anyone, not the poor, disabled, rich, those with a different cultural background or appearance, the broken, successful or arrogant. We need to take God for his word as faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As we heard last week, let's be doers of the word, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know it is not always easy to be loving towards our brothers and sisters. And we've also heard tonight that it is not acceptable to, take, to make excuses and reason why we haven't been loving. God, please help us to remember what you've done, to remember that your wrath towards our sin is real, but also to remember the love that you first showed us while we were sinners, that that is greater. Help us to remember that your mercies are new every morning. And in your mercy, change us, that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ genuinely, without division, for your glory. Amen.